Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we're continuing our study of Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at that great and beloved verse, Romans 8:28. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. We are making our way towards the end of Romans chapter 8. Today we find ourselves on verse 28. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In our last study, we started talking about verse 28 as we spoke about what it means in its original context. Verse 28 is a beloved verse by many people. It's the favorite verse in the whole Bible for many people. And I think I would probably consider myself in that category especially after writing the study. I discovered some quite interesting things while putting the study together, and at least I think they're, uh, they're interesting. And hopefully I can communicate to you just how amazing this verse is. Verse 28 is a verse which is most often removed from its context and cited as a standalone verse. And actually, in this case, I don't have too much of a problem with doing that. The way I read it, it is meant to be a verse with general application, and so citing it as a standalone verse doesn't really distort its meaning, which is always a danger when a verse is taken out of its context. But as we study the book of Romans here, it's important that we understand this verse within its context as well, and how it ties to the surrounding verses. Romans 8.28 is a transition verse of sorts. It completes the thought of the preceding passage and then introduces a key concept that is expanded on in the verses that follow it. In fact, I see Romans 8.28 as a major transition point in the entire book of Romans. It completes a section of the book that deals with living life as a Christian in this fallen world. This section went from the beginning of chapter 5 until, well, here in Romans 8.28. And then, Uh, This verse begins a section that talks about God's people in general and God's sovereignty in dealing with his people. That starts here in Romans 8.28 and goes through chapter 11 of Romans. So then, I see this verse as a major transition point in the book of Romans, and I think that's quite amazing. I mean, here you have this verse that is quoted as a standalone promise by millions of people, And it is a beloved verse, which millions of people have memorized, totally out of its original context. And yet, at the same time, the verse is also doing the job of bringing two major sections of the book of Romans together as it wraps up the topic that that went before it in the previous few chapters and also introduces the topic that comes after it for the next few chapters. And, And that's just one of the reasons I think this is an amazing, amazing verse. It's a verse with remarkable complexity. And in the original Greek, it was constructed very carefully in order to perform all of these jobs at once. I'm just astounded from a literary point of view about how amazingly deep and complex this verse is. So let's read Romans 8.28 in its original context, both some of the preceding verses and succeeding verses um, 
uh, we'll be reading. So we'll read from verse 26 through verse 30 with a special focus, of course, on verse 28. Here we go. Romans 8, 26 through 30. Quote, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And here comes verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified." Now, concerning the context, we talked last week about how this verse wraps up the short passage on prayer by telling us that God answers our prayers in such a way that all things work together for good. That's how this verse ties to the preceding context. We were just told in verses 26 and 27 about how the Holy Spirit is helping us in our prayers, interceding for us in accordance with God's will. And so that thought is wrapped up by telling us that God works everything together for our good. But as I said, this verse also introduces the next major section of the Bible. And one of the major themes of the next section is that God is sovereign in dealing with his people. This concept is introduced by the last phrase where Paul describes the children of God as being those who are, quote, called according to his purpose, unquote. The implication here is that God, in his sovereignty, has called those who become his people, those who become his children. And then, in the next verse, in verse 29, Paul solidifies this concept by saying, quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, unquote. So then, given all this, this verse is crucially important from a literary point of view because it beautifully forms the transition between these major sections in the book of Romans. Again, what precedes this verse is a long passage starting in chapter 5, which looks at things from the viewpoint of a Christian living in this fallen world. And then verse 28 transitions to what follows the verse, which is a long passage which, which looks at things from God's point of view, where God is sovereign over everything. I hope you're starting to see just how amazing this verse is. So in summary, this verse not only has beautiful and uplifting content, but it also plays an important literary role as a transition point in the book, as I pointed out. And we can see this even clearer if we look at a translation of this verse which follows more closely the word order in the original Greek language. In the original Greek, the order of the phrases is different than most English translations render it. And I think the original phrase ordering in the Greek has great significance, which we lose because most English translations change around the ordering. This verse consists of four phrases. Here they are. And we know that. And then, in all things God works for the good, or, or it's translated sometimes, all things work together for the good. Um, in fact, most translations correctly render it that way. And then the phrase, 
to those who love God, and then the fourth phrase is to those called according to his purpose. And this rendering shows the phrase ordering used in most English translations, the order that I just gave it. Uh, one can see the original Greek phrase ordering by using a tool called the an interlinear Greek-English Bible. This is a tool that shows the original Greek text in line with an English translation. It's a tool that I use and many other teachers and pastors and commentators use when studying the Bible. Um, if you have access to the slide presentation on video, uh, I'm showing you uh, how the verse looks in the interlinear Bible. And in that Greek interlinear Bible, you can see that uh, what stands out is that the phrase ordering is not the same as in the NIV translation and in most English translations. In both the Greek and the NIV, the phrase, and we know that, does come first. So far, so good. But then, in the Greek, the next phrase is to those who love God. This, to me, was a bit earth-shattering. It, it shook my world. As you may have noticed, I pay, I, pay, I pay close attention to literary aspects of the text and the style of writing, and learning about the original ordering of these phrases was quite significant for me, and, and I'll talk about why in a second. After discovering this ordering by reading the Interlinear Bible, I went looking for a translation that renders the phrases in the correct order, and I was kind of surprised to find that there are very few translations which do so, but there are a few, so I'm not totally crazy. One translation that uses the correct phrase ordering is the ESV version, uh, English Standard Version Bible, which is a fairly new uh, translation as translations go. It came out in 2001, and it, it has become quite popular. A lot of churches are starting to use it. Um, so anyway, here's the ESV rendering of the verse as compared to the NIV. And we see that the ESV has the same phrase ordering as in the Greek, which to me makes it a better translation of this particular verse. Here's how the ESV uh, translation uh, reads. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, for the purposes of going forward in our study, we'll be using the ESV translation because, as I said, I think it's a more faithful translation because it preserves the Greek phrases in the original order, which to me is significant as we will discuss. As I said, there are four phrases in this verse. We have an introductory phrase which says, and we know that. And then we have two phrases which are similar and yet different. These phrases both describe the person to whom this verse applies. One says it's, quote, for those who love God. And the other says it's, quote, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then in the middle, we have the heart of the verse, the substance of the verse, which states a great promise. It says, quote, all things work together for good. So let's look at each of these phrases in detail. We'll begin by talking about the heart of the verse, which is this great promise in the middle of it. The promise states, quote, all things work together for good. It's 
an amazing promise and quite a beloved promise among Christians. Millions of Christians have memorized this verse so that this promise is a constant companion to them. It tells us that we as Christians aren't bombarded with random events that occur around us and to us and against us, but rather there is a purpose to everything that happens to us. And everything that happens to us is, quote, working together for the good. This promise can be a great comforter when we face difficult times. We know by it that in the end, when we have gotten through whatever difficulty that we're facing, we'll be able to look back on it and say, yes, that was for my good. And so this promise can be an encouragement to us, which gives us patience and even courage through difficult times. I can certainly understand why this verse is so loved by many Christians. Note that Paul says, all things. He leaves nothing out. All of our afflictions, trials, persecutions, calamities, illnesses, stumbles, stresses, and even successes, let's not leave those out, all of these things work together for our good. That's quite a promise. It tells us that these things don't hit us at random. There is a plan behind everything. Those of the world are buffeted around by this fallen world. We face the same sorts of trials and affliction that those of the world face, but our trials and afflictions have a purpose behind them and are leading to a good result. Now, of course, this all implies that we will face difficulties in life. However, nothing that happens to us is an accident or the result of blind chance. Everything occurs for a reason, with the end being good. In the book of Hebrews, hardship for the child of God is described as discipline. Here's what the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Quote, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And then on down to verse 11 of that same chapter. Quote, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Unquote. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. A similar sentiment uh, is found in Romans 8.28. Now, these things work together for our good. The Greek word here is the word for work, which is ergon or ergo, which is the Greek word that we get the prefix ergo from, you know, as in ergonomics. Uh, but that word has a prefix slapped onto it in the original Greek. The prefix is S-Y-N, sin, which means with or together. That means when you put the, the two parts together, you get a word that most of us are familiar with in English, sin ergeo in the Greek, or as we would say in English, synergy. In English, the word synergy is used when various different things work together such that the end result is greater than the sum of its parts. This is a popular and cool word that managers use nowadays. Managers are always looking for synergy, uh, looking for ways to put, for example, people together in a team in a way that when they're put together, more productivity results than when they were working alone. That's what synergy means in English. And so from the English word, we can pretty much understand the concept of things working together as described in Romans 8.28. This word implies that you have multiple things 
whose activities are being put together like pieces of a puzzle, and when all is said and done, the sum of the pieces create an end result which is good for us. All things working together for good. By the way, what is the good? The implication in the verse is that it is for our good, but it's, of course, our good in the sight of God, according to God's standards of what is good for us. We may or may not agree with God about what is good for us, just as children don't always agree with their parents about what is good for them. When we give our children uh, children vegetables or whatever, uh, they don't think that's good, but we do it anyway because it's good for them. Good in the context of Christian growth nearly always means improvement such that we become more Christ-like, improvement on our path of sanctification, progress in being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's usually the good that results for the child of God. So that's the heart of the verse, the core promise of this verse. All things work together for the good. Let's now look at the other phrases beginning with the first one, and we know that. And we know that. This might be sort of a throwaway phrase, which as you're reading, you just kind of skip over. It might, might not even really register as you're reading through the book of Romans. But let's stop and think about what it's saying. And we know that. The question is, do we actually know this? This phrase is implying that what follows is something that is almost self-evident, something that we should, you know, that we all should know. But do we? In other words, if Paul had not written this verse here, would we have known that all things work together for our good? I'm not sure that I would have. And I don't think most people would know this if Paul hadn't written it down for us. In fact, that's why this verse is so beloved among Christians. It's because I think Paul is saying something here that is, number one, really fantastic, and number two, not really obvious. If Paul was saying something that was obvious and self-evident, then we wouldn't love this verse so much. We would read and say, oh, oh yeah, of course, that's so obvious. But we, but we don't do that. We read this verse and we stop it and, and we relish in it and, and we even memorize it and, and meditate on it. We do that because this statement really is not obvious. So I think Paul is being a bit mischievous here in how he words this. He, he begins the verse by saying, oh, of course, we all know this. And then he gives us this great promise about the working of God in our life. And it's absolutely something that we don't know or, or that we wouldn't know if Paul hadn't told us. But I think that what, what Paul is saying here is that if we don't know it, well, we should have known it. And this begs the question, well, why should we have known this? Why is this great promise something that we should already know? Well, um, in, in the way I see it, I think you can class the reasons that we should have known this in two categories. One category is retrospective reasons that we should have known this. The other category is prospective reasons that we should have known this. A retrospective reason is that we look back on our lives and see that this is true. Um, can all, all of you think of any examples of this? I mean, examples where you look at things now 
and you see how things all fit together and maybe during the time you didn't realize it but then after the fact you see hey well these things are working together for my good for the prospective reasons i think that the correct greek word ordering helps us in this in the original verse ordering the clause and we know that is next to the clause for those who love god this is the way that paul wrote it and i think this is the way that paul meant it to be well he wrote it like that so <laughs> clearly he did to me the juxtaposition of the phrases gives us a hint of why we should know this if we love god just as paul says for those who love god then we know the character of God and the love that he has for his people. And then also, we know and believe that God is all-powerful. So given these two facts, we should know that he will work all things out together for our good. He loves us. He has the power and ability to do such a thing, and so he'll work things out for our good. That's why we should know this. This brings us to the remaining two phrases, which I'll discuss together because they're related. The bracketing phrases in the original Greek word ordering uh, each describe the receiver of the great promise at the heart of this verse. So you have this promise in the middle of the verse, and it's bracketed on one side by one description of a believer, and on the other side by another description of a believer. And it's really each of these two phrases completely describe the receiver of the promise in the center. Uh, so much so that you might think these phrases were redundant. We could take it, either of these phrases out of the verse and the verse would totally make sense. For instance, we could have the verse read like this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we could stop right there. Or alternatively, we could say, and we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Either of these readings would be just fine. So in a way, the phrases are redundant. Each one totally and completely describes the Christian, the receiver of the promise at the heart of the verse. So they do seem redundant on the surface, except for the fact that they describe the believer in two totally different ways from two totally different points of view. And that's just one more thing that makes this verse fascinating. One of the phrases describes the believer from the point of view of the believer, for those who love God. The other of the two phrases describes the believer from the point of view of God, for those who are called according to God's purpose. One of these phrases defines the believer by an action that the believer takes. He or she loves God. The other defines the believer by an action that God takes. God calls according to his purpose. One of these phrases defines the believer as the result of an act of free will. The believer chooses to love God. And the other phrase defines the believer as the result of a sovereign act of God's election. God in his sovereignty calls the believer according to his purpose. I think this is amazing because this is one of the great, probably, probably the greatest, I guess you would say, controversies that the Bible raises. There's a tension between whether we become believers by an act of our own free will, 
or whether we are called to be believers through the sovereignty of God. We have this great tension between two seemingly contradictory possibilities. And yet, here, we have Paul saying that both of these things are true, because he states them both in the very same verse. Believers make this choice to love God, yet at the same time, believers are called according to the purpose of God. It's all right here in the same verse. So many would ask, well, which is it? Do we become believers by an act of our free will, by choosing to love God? Or do we become believers through God's sovereign election? And Paul answers that question right here. And his answer is both. It must be both, because Paul states them both right here in the same verse. Now, you might ask, well, how can it be both? They seem to be contradictory. And I would probably agree, yeah, they do seem so. And that's the great mystery. Really, we have no way of understanding. We can never understand this mystery because we don't know what it's like to be God. We don't know what it's like to have all knowledge. We don't know what it's like to have all power. We don't know what it's like to see the end from the beginning. So we couldn't possibly solve this mystery. But we do know what it's like to be a human being. And we do feel, with every fiber of our being really, that we make decisions based upon our own free will. We believe that, with every fiber of our being, that we have made this choice to have faith in Christ. We have made this choice to love God. So this part, this side of things, we understand. And really, this is the most important part for us to understand because it's the phrase that's told from a human point of view. That's the most important side for us to understand because, well, we are humans. And given that we're humans, we should focus really on that side of the question, the decisions that we make every day as believing Christians. We need to strive in our free will to make the right moral choices as we live our lives. And, and, well, and we can let God worry about his side of the equation. The way I put it is, let humans be human and let God be God how I would put it. Because trust me, you can twist your mind in all sorts of knots trying to reconcile all of the statements in the Bible concerning these two concepts. But rather than trying to figure out what it's like to be God and and to think like God and to be an all-knowing God, I think it's better to concentrate on the choices that each of us make as humans within the confines of our own understanding. That is, you know, the choices that we voluntarily make. Anyway, when I noticed that this verse referenced these two competing kind of concepts that the Bible teaches and and references them all in one verse and used each one to describe the very same believer, well, for me, that just took this verse to a whole new level of profundity. It really makes it an amazing verse. Here you have at the center of the verse one of the absolutely great promises in the Bible. It's a promise that touches every single thing that we do in life. Paul says, all things work together for our good. This just has to be one of the, you know, the greatest promises in the Bible. And and this promise is sandwiched in the middle of two complete all-encompassing descriptions of a Christian. One given from the human point of view and the other given from God's point of view. And moreover, these two descriptions represent two sides of the greatest and most mysterious controversy and, and, and really 
theoretically difficult concepts in the Bible. This tension between the free will of humans and the sovereignty of God. And it's like both sides of this controversy are staring at each other in this verse, like two fighters on the edge of an MMA octagon or something. One on one side of the great promise and, and one on the other side of the great promise. What an absolutely amazingly constructed sentence this is. And by the way, that's why I think, you know, it's so important to translate this verse using the original Greek phrase ordering because you miss a lot of the beauty of the construction of this verse by not translating it correctly. You would miss the fact that these two concepts are separated from each other, staring at each other through that great promise. And that's just beautiful, beautiful writing. And the beauty doesn't stop there. There's one more thing that I need to point out, and that's how this verse fits into the entire structure of the book of Romans. I said earlier that this verse is a transition verse between two major sections of the book of Romans. The construction of this verse, as Paul originally constructed it, reflects that. The chapters leading up to this verse speak of things from the human point of view. They speak of our need for the gospel in chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, of course, contains this great statement of the gospel message. Uh, for instance, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the following, quote, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, unquote. Faith is an act of free will that we make. We choose to have faith in Christ and believe in Him as our Lord and Savior. Paul goes on to write about the struggles of living the Christian life in this fallen world. In chapter 6, he encourages us to make the choice of being servants of God rather than slaves to sin. Here's what he says there, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, quote, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness." Unquote. We as Christians are to make the choice of offering ourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness. Even here in chapter 8, Paul speaks of how in order to gain all of the benefits of God's grace, we need to be led by the Spirit as we live our lives. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, quote, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God." Unquote. So then, as I said, the chapters leading up to Romans 8.28 speak of things primarily from a human point of view. So it fits perfectly to have the first phrase in Romans 8.28 describe the Christian from the human point of view, from the point of view of human choice. A Christian is one who loves God. After Romans 8.28, there's going to be a few chapters that speak of things from God's point of view and speak clearly and specifically about the sovereignty of God. So, to lead into that, Paul, at the end of this verse, 
describes the Christian from God's point of view. The Christian is one who is called according to God's purpose. This leads into a couple of verses which speak very strongly about God's role in our being Christians. Let's read Romans 8, 29 and 20, 30. Quote, 20, 30, 29 and 30. Quote, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Then down in verse 33, it says, quote, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies, unquote. And then this all leads into chapter 9 of Romans, which speaks very clearly on God's sovereignty over whom he decides to have mercy on. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 16 say this, quote, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Then down in verse 18 of chapter 9, it says, quote, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, unquote. And that section ends at the end of chapter 11 um, with this great doxology or, or hymn of praise that Paul gives us about the wisdom and sovereignty of God in all of these things. Let's read that great passage. Romans 11 uh, verses 33 to 36 says, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Unquote. So then we have these chapters leading up to Romans 8.28 centered on the believer and the life of the believer, leading into a description of the Christian from a human point of view, describing us as those who love God. And then at the end of the verse, we have the description of the Christian from God's point of view, describing us as those who are called according to God's purpose. And that leads into this fairly long section, which describes things from God's point of view, how God is sovereign over everything that goes on. Given all of this, we see how perfectly uh, this verse, Romans 8.28, does its job, not only by expressing this great promise to us, but it also does the literary job of serving as a perfect transition in the book of Romans, paving the way as we make our way in this book to looking at things from God's point of view. And that's where we're headed. We're headed into some tough sailing here. The passages that we're looking at, starting with the next studying and heading into Romans chapter 9, which is considered by many to be the most difficult chapter of the Bible, this is all tough sailing. Because, frankly, it's looking at things from God's point of view. And it's tough, because we're not God. We don't know how God sees things. And we'll talk about that. But it's good for us to study these passages. They are part of the Bible. They are part of God's word to us. And so we should study them and even wrestle with them. 
let me tell you, there are some things which are written here that we are not going to fully understand. And actually, well, that makes sense because we can't see the entire picture like God does. So how could we possibly think that we could understand everything when it's told from his point of view? So you know, brace yourselves, read ahead, you know, do your homework, look at this stuff ahead of time, and, and we'll do our best to make sense of it as we forge on through these studies in the book of Romans. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.